Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 199, The First National Catastrophe. Now, there are no new patrons since I recorded the last episode, so we're just going to get right into things. Last time, we covered the unrest in the Bulgarian army as mobilized men became increasingly frustrated by not being allowed to return home. Elsewhere, attempts at finding a peaceful solution to Bulgaria's conflict with its neighbors failed. While the Danif government did ultimately persuade Russia to finally step in and act as an arbiter, the Tsar and his army stepped in at that point to prevent a, basically prevent that from happening, to prevent Dana from meeting with the governments and ensuring that everything got delayed. Instead, June the 15th saw a Vemoro-led uprising begin in Macedonia, and the night of the 16th saw the first Bulgarian attacks against Greece and Serbia. There's already been intense confusion as the Bulgarian government frantically sent messages to stop the attack, resulting in some armies attacking as plans, while others just sat there wondering what to do. But there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. It's June 16th, 1913, and the Second Balkan War has begun. Now we'll start covering this war in the south, where the Bulgarian second army faced the entire Greek army of around 109 to 118,000 men alone with just 75,000. Importantly, around a quarter of those 75,000 Bulgarian soldiers were basically untrained new recruits. That said, 75,000 is the official number, and some sources, including the army's commander after the war, put the actual number as low as 36,000. But regardless of which number you take, it's clear that the Bulgarian second army facing the Greeks is outnumbered. But despite this, they're ordered to advance against their numerically superior foe and to quickly take Thessaloniki. The first day of the war here was met with mixed success. The Bulgarians did manage to take a port near Kavala and bombard Greek ships in the harbor, but they also had 1,200 soldiers who were jointly occupying Thessaloniki with the Greeks, captured by the Greeks. Understandable, they were surrounded, you know, behind enemy lines. Now, General Savov had ordered these soldiers to withdraw back in April, but the central government in Sofia countermanded that order, believing their presence helped reinforce Bulgaria's claim on the city. But as a result, they stood no chance and, after a brief fight, were taken prisoner. Now, the original plan had been for the Bulgarian troops facing the Greeks to actually remain on the defensive until a decisive victory could be obtained against the Serbs. But the chaos of the first days of the war and Ferdinand's order for a general advance meant the plan was never really implemented. But in any case, the first few days saw some advances, but with those contradictory commands to halt and to advance from the government, from the army high command, making it difficult for Bulgarian forces to act decisively. As a result, the first four days of fighting were chaotic and ineffective. 
By the 19th of June, the situation had been clarified and the official order was to attack. But by this point, the Greeks were ready for their own counterattack. Now, against Serbia, Bulgarian forces did manage to advance in the north and the south, but not in the center. Here, the Bulgarian offensive was likewise hampered by those contradictory orders. Units which did manage to advance were then shocked and confused to suddenly receive orders to return to their original positions. This, combined with stiff Serbian resistance in many areas, greatly limited the ability of the Bulgarian armies to make real headway for the first few days. Similarly to the Greeks, this confusion gave the Serbs a few days to recover and prepare their own counterattack, which they executed on the third day of the war. In the subsequent two days, they managed to push the Bulgarians back to their initial positions. And it was at this point, four or five days into the war, just as Serbia and Greece were either pushing their attacks or about to counterattack, that the Bulgarian government actually made a formal request to end the war. However, Greece and Serbia refused. Now, the Bulgarians did find some successes against the Serbs in the days after the Serbian government refused to end the war, particularly at the Battle of Krivolak in central Macedonia. However, the overall situation meant that there was no real way to capitalize on such local successes. That said, despite the success, the Serbs also failed to capitalize on their victories and missed an opportunity to advance on Gorna Jumaya, modern Bulgarvgrad, and thereby basically destroy the 4th Bulgarian army. And to the south, the Bulgarians facing the Greeks were dealing with their own challenges. Bombarded by Greek warships in the Aegean Sea, they were now merely attempting to hold their good defensive positions north of Thessaloniki, but to no avail. From the 19th of June, the day the Bulgarians requested that ceasefire, to the 21st, the Bulgarians fought stubbornly but were ultimately pushed back. General Ivanov, commander of the Bulgarian Second Army facing the Greeks, later wrote in his memoir, quote, That day, 21st of June, was the day of the crisis of the Second Army. This crisis was not so much material as moral, which was important in the situation. The soldiers lost faith in themselves, mainly because of seeing the numerical superiority of the enemy and seeing no help anywhere. The situation became so depressing that the soldiers in several day-long battles estimated the size of the enemy and realized they were so outnumbered that they could only lose. End quote. Reinforcements were sent south to the Greek frontier, but they arrived just in time to join the retreat. It was too late. This retreat then exposed the flank of the 4th Bulgarian army facing the Serbs in central Macedonia, forcing that army to retreat themselves. In the wake of these retreats, the Greeks captured the towns of Ceres, Kavala, and Drama over the next week, effectively ending the dream about Thessaloniki and the possibility of controlling any part of Aegean Macedonia. Ironically, the Bulgarian 1st and 3rd armies up in the north did find some success here, taking Knyazevac and Pirot, two major towns on the other side of the Serbian border. But in light of the disaster unfolding in the south, these gains had little strategic significance. As they advanced, both Serbian and Greek armies burned towns and killed Bulgarian inhabitants. 
On the 23rd, the Serbs captured the headquarters of the Bulgarian 6th Cavalry Regiment and executed all present. So this takes us to June the 28th. By this point, the war has been raging for about two weeks. The Bulgarians had advanced somewhat against the Serbs in the north, but the crucial fronts in Macedonia against the Serbs and in Aegean Macedonia against the Greeks have been disasters, with Bulgarian forces now in full retreat. But it was at this moment that the situation suddenly became far, far worse. After beginning their mobilization five days earlier, Romania declared war on Bulgaria. In an instant, the front lines Bulgaria would essentially need to defend more or less doubled. Romanian forces immediately began moving into southern Dobroja, while elsewhere its forces prepared to cross the Danube into what was essentially undefended northern Bulgaria. Soon, one Romanian cavalry unit reached as far south as Varna before actually deciding to withdraw back to the main force because the Bulgarians were offering no resistance. Seeing the rapid Romanian gains convinced the Ottomans to enter the fray two days later on June 30th. Bulgaria was now totally surrounded. An Ottoman army of around a quarter of a million men began to advance into Thrace, facing a token force of a few thousand Bulgarian defenders with no real hope of stemming the tide. At this point, the blows began to fall hard and fast. On July 1st, a Romanian army of another quarter of a million men began crossing the Danube at Oryakovo, Nikopol, and Gigen. They had soon built a pontoon bridge that stretched nearly a kilometer long over the Danube. Built in just 26 hours, it was hailed as a masterpiece of military engineering. The Bulgarian Danube Navy was vastly outmatched by the Romanians, forcing the Bulgarian sailors to scuttle their small fleet. At the same time, the Serbs began what would take se- become basically several failed attempts at taking Vidin after surrounding it with the help of the Romanians showing that the Bulgarians facing them were still ready to resist these advances effectively. Still, the Serbs were reversing Bulgarian advances all over the place, and in the north they took Belgracic on July the 2nd. Now, when the Romanians intervened, Bulgarian forces had just about managed to stabilize their lines facing Greece and Serbia after so many retreats, and were actually preparing to counterattack. Indeed, Without Romanian or Ottoman intervention, victory was theoretically still possible on these fronts. But now, Romanian forces fanned out across the country. Facing no resistance, they advanced with lightning speed, quickly capturing Dobrich, Belchik, and Varna by July the 5th. The next day, the Greeks captured Nevrokop, modern Gotsedelchev, and before beginning to kind of push north through the Kresna Gorge along the Struma River, and now Anyone who's driven around southwestern Bulgaria will know the Kresna Gorge is the main choke point here. Even today, in 2023, they're still trying to build a highway that was originally envisioned for the 2004 Athens Olympics, but the fact that this is an earthquake-prone area and the gorge is very small with not a lot of space uh, outside where the river is, it's a very difficult place. It's, It's difficult terrain, it's narrow, and there isn't a good way around it even for contemporary road engineers. So you can imagine this was a real difficult point for military logistics in 1913. Now, by this point, 
The Greeks had already defeated the Bulgarians in the Rupel Gorge by outflanking it, but that was a bit further south, and by the time they reached the Kresna Gorge, the Greeks were also really reaching the limits of their logistics. The Greeks had been advancing so quickly, but by this point that they were basically getting exhausted and again outrunning their supply lines. Now, the Greeks did initially manage to push through the Kresna Gorge, but the hundreds of kilometers of damaged roads, destroyed build uh, bridges and such behind them meant that each additional kilometer they advanced became more and more difficult. At this point, Russia and Austria were pressuring all sides to basically begin an armistice and stop the fighting. But the Greeks and Serbs could see that Bulgaria was in a disastrous state and were willing and eager to press their advantage, believing that the Bulgarians were basically on the brink of collapse. But, crucially, Greece and Serbia were wrong. Despite the Bulgarian army's ability to continue resisting the Serbs and Greeks, though, they couldn't resist the Ottomans or Romanians. On July 10th, Romanian forces reached the outskirts of Sofia, basically where Sofia's airport is now, while the Ottomans recaptured Adrianople. Territory Bulgarians had died for in their thousands just months earlier was now being taken essentially without a fight. That same day, the Greeks, having pushed through the Kresna Gorge, took Bansko and Rezlog and seemed poised to take the main regional city of Gornajumaya. Now, in light of these disasters all around, Stoyan Danov's government resigned on July 13th. Four days later, he was replaced by a new liberal government under Vasil Radoslavov, a more pro-German and pro-Austrian Russophobe. If his name sounds familiar, it's because he had been prime minister back in 1886 and 1887, when he was the youngest prime minister in Bulgarian history, before becoming the main opposition figure to Stefan Stambolov. Well, that was decades in the past, he had held various ministries often during these decades, and by now was a very seasoned politician. On taking office, Radoslavov immediately put out a request for a loan from any but one of the great powers. And eventually, Austria-Hungary would step in to help, but in the meantime, clearly the prime minister had more pressing issues. For one, the Romanians were poised to take Sofia, though Tsar Ferdinand managed to get a personal appeal to King Carol of Romania not to. Thus, the Bulgarian capital remained in Bulgarian hands, despite being basically undefended from the north. Bulgarian forces retreating north of Gornadjumaya triggered a revolt by Turks living in that town. Yet, the Bulgarians actually followed this up with a counterattack in the south, which managed to surround some elements of the Greek army and push them back towards the south. Well, up to this point, the Greeks and Romanians had refused an armistice under the belief that they would be able to just take more territory. The prospect of the destruction of such a large Greek force meant that King Constantine finally had to accept a halt to the fighting. The king wrote to his prime minister, quote, my army is physically and morally exhausted. In the light of these conditions, I can no longer refuse an armistice or suspension of hostilities. Endeavor to find some way of securing a suspension of hostilities. End quote. Hall points out that had the king not made this decision, he very well may have been captured personally by the Bulgarians in this maneuver. However, Hall then points out that, quote, a last-minute victory over the Greeks, however emotionally satisfying, 
could only exacerbate Bulgaria's predicament. The Bulgarian success against the Greeks around Kresna Gorge could not have reversed the outcome of the war. For Bulgaria, the war, and with it most of Macedonia and eastern Thrace, was lost. The defensive victory, however, did help ensure that the newly acquired region of southeastern Macedonia, Piran Macedonia, would not become Greek. It also restored Bulgarian confidence to some degree in their military. End quote. And so, the Bulgarian victory at Krasna Gorge and the fact that it convinced the, particularly the Greeks to kind of agree to an armistice meant that this basically marks the end to the fighting. The Bulgarian army had been pushed back in Macedonia and northwestern Bulgaria, but ultimately, no victories there could change the fact that Ottoman and Romanian troops were essentially roaming the rest of the country at will. In fact, the Ottomans and Romanians took no casualties, except for disease-caused ones, in the entire war, showing that the extent to which their advances into Bulgaria were unopposed. Just as peace talks in Bucharest were about to begin, the great powers finally finished deciding on the borders of the new Principality of Albania. This new state was larger than the Balkan League had wanted, but smaller than the Albanians themselves had desired, roughly corresponding to Albania's borders today. As a result, nearly half of all ethnic Albanians lived outside of the borders of the new state. In particular, many found themselves in Serbia, where they faced everything ranging from basic persecution to outright massacre. Serbia refused Austrian demands to withdraw its forces to the new Serbo-Albanian border, insisting that it had to keep its troops on the Albanian side to handle Albanian banditry, before just denying that the soldiers were even there. This is said to become an ongoing problem that will further worsen relations between Belgrade and Vienna, because the Austrians see Albania as a potential client state in the region and don't like the fact that the Serbs are, you know, being hostile towards it and sort of, you know, keeping their troops within its borders. Now, an interesting side note, shortly after the Second Balkan War began, uh, Jan Sandansky was actually sent by the Bulgarian government, ironic considering he was still kind of technically a wanted man by that same government, to Albania to negotiate their assistance in a potential war against Serbia and Greece. And, well, there are conflicting reports about how successful this was, but in any case, the Albanians never really came to Bulgaria's aid, and so, yeah, not that the Albanians were in a great position to do so, but, yeah, there was an attempt made. And so this brings us to the peace treaty negotiations in Bucharest. By July 16th, the final representatives arrived in the city, and the conference to decide Bulgaria's fate began the next day. Ironically, it was only the day after that, on the 18th, that a formal truce was even signed, meaning the Second Balkan War saw fighting last just over 33 days. The conference was attended by representatives of the great powers, although formally it was really only for the Balkan states, as Romania had even rejected an Ottoman request to participate. This meant that the end of the war with the, between Bulgaria and the Ottomans would be a separate treaty. Now by this point, Bulgaria had already agreed to cede southern Dobra to Romania, so there really wasn't much negotiating between Bulgaria and Romania. However, the Bulgarian delegation did hope that they may able, be able to use this concession to Romania to convince the Romanians to sort of back Bulgaria against Greece and Serbia. However, this didn't pan out. 
the Bulgarians truly stood alone, and nothing they could say at this point was really going to change that. However, the Romanians did push the Greeks and Serbs to be a little more moderate, because they didn't want anyone besides themselves in the Balkans to become too strong, and they felt that giving in to kind of maximalist demands by Greece and Serbia would make those two states too powerful and would, in their eyes, upset the balance of power in the region. So the Romanians were a bit of a moderating force. For example, the Serbs wanted to take both Vardar Macedonia and Piran Macedonia, essentially meaning the Bulgarians would have ended up without getting a single additional kilometer of territory in Macedonia, territory as we know they have fought so hard for in the past decades. Ultimately, though, it was agreed that Bulgaria would keep Piran Macedonia, again, in part because of their defeat of the Greek army there. The only other piece of Macedonia Sofia was granted was a little corridor to the town of Shtip, which the Serbian prime minister granted, quote, in honor of General Fichev, end quote. In other words, basically as a kind of personal favor to this particular Bulgarian general. Now with Greece, the main point of contention was with the port of Kavala, because, well, there was no question at this point about Thessaloniki. Bulgaria wanted to keep at least one decent quality port on the Aegean Sea, but the Greeks would not budge. Interestingly, this was a rare case where the great powers actually broke into rather unusual camps, with Austria and Russia backing Bulgaria, while France and Germany backed the Greeks. In the end, though, Bulgaria lost out on Kavala, meaning the only Bulgarian port on the Aegean would be Tegiagach, I think that's the pronunciation, which is modern Alexandropoli. And the problem here is that this is a not a very good port. It, it doesn't have a very deep kind of place for ships to come in, and it's not very well developed. So yes, Bulgaria got a port, but not one that it could do a lot with, at least without substantial investment. Now, Montenegro was also at the treaty, and, well, they only were participating in the hope that Serbia would grant them some of the Sanjak of Novi Pazar in return for their help in the Second Balkan War. And in this, they were successful with Serbia, handing a small piece of the territory over to them. Thus, on July the 28th, the conference was concluded, and the Treaty of Bucharest signed. The new border with the Ottomans was yet to be decided, but ultimately, Bulgaria had gained Piran Macedonia, the town of Shtip, and a relatively poor stretch of the Aegean coast. Irish journalist James Boucher called it the greatest diplomatic crime of the century. The leader of the Bulgarian delegation to Bucharest, Dmitry Tonchev, said simply, quote, either the powers will change it or we ourselves will destroy it, end quote. In other words, while Greece and Serbia had succeeded almost beyond their wildest dreams, and Romania had established itself as an even greater regional power, they had all made a bitter enemy in the process. As expressed by Tonchev, this peace treaty, Bulgaria's first national catastrophe, could never really be viewed as permanent by most Bulgarians. And in fact, popular opinion at this point is overwhelmingly against it, and the Bulgarians are, again, as Tonchev made it clear, absolutely determined to get rid of this treaty and to alter it by any means necessary. So, it's funny, I mean, in a way, the Congress of Berlin, which was a treaty that the Bulgarians were determined to get rid of by any means necessary, has been replaced by 
the Congress of Bucharest and its treaty, which the Bulgarians are determined to get rid of by any means necessary. As a result of all of this, though, Serbia had grown by 80% in land area and 41% in population. Greece had grown by 91% in land and 67% in population. Remember, the Greeks also got Crete. Montenegro itself had grown by about 65%. Now, this gives you some idea of how enormous the result of the First and Second Balkan Wars were for the Balkan states. Except for Bulgaria, they all got immensely larger, got much larger populations. And thus, you know, although there were a lot of expenses in the short term, in the long term, they all became much more powerful. By contrast, Bulgaria had barely grown at all and had taken more casualties than all the other Balkan states combined, with only the Ottomans losing more men. For now, though, Bulgaria had to lick its wounds. The day after the treaty was signed, the Bulgarian army was finally demobilized. A day after that, the National Assembly voted to allocate half a million leva to support the hundreds of thousands of refugees that were now pouring over Bulgaria's borders to escape persecution by the Ottomans, the Romanians, the Serbs, and the Greeks. That same day, Romania, Greece, and Montenegro, as well as Serbia, signed an anti-Bulgarian alliance, making it clear that they stood together in holding firm to the Treaty of Bucharest, and that any attempt by Bulgaria to alter it would mean it would once again be completely surrounded by enemies. Thus, Bulgaria came out of the Balkan Wars a broken country, saddled with debts, death, destruction, and a deep sort of sense of tragedy, a sense of loss. And well, next time, We'll do a wrap-up of the Balkan Wars, looking at the military, financial, political, and other costs that resulted, and seeing just where Bulgaria will find itself after such a calamity. I can't promise it will be the most uplifting episode, but it will be useful in really understanding to what extent and just why this is called the first national catastrophe. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out bghistorypodcast.com for more information about this and all of the episodes.